This is a special episode of the Theology Matters podcast, making available a lecture from the CTI archives, a lecture given by Jeremy Waldron at CTI a few years ago during our inquiry on law and religious freedom, which was funded by the John Templeton Foundation. Jeremy Waldron is university professor in the School of Law at New York University and the author of many articles and books, including the 2017 book, One Another's Equals, The Basis of Human Equality, which was based on his Gifford lectures given at the University of Edinburgh in 2015. The lecture presented here is on a related theme, human dignity and our relation to God. I'd like to take this opportunity to invite listeners to send questions and comments by email to editor at ctinquiry.org. Thanks for joining the conversation. The address I'm going to give may seem at some distance from the issue of religious freedom, but the distance is one of boring down deep into the foundations. This is mostly going to be a discussion of uh, the basis of human dignity, the basis of the equal dignity of human beings, claims which must underlie, though, as I said, at some deep distance, anything we say about religious freedom. And I want to talk about how we should regard the religious foundations of religious freedom, and the religious foundations, indeed, of all human rights, but I think the story that I want to tell will be a story that has particular relevance to the religious freedom theme. Mary Ellen, I won't say a lot about international law as such, happy to talk about it, um, maybe in the session this afternoon and also tomorrow, but everything I say is going to be relevant to that just because we are talking about foundations of human rights, foundations of human dignity, which is a, 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 a pillar of international human rights law. Um, the other thing I want to warn you about is that I want to interrogate this concept in a reasonably rigorous way, not allowing us any easy assumptions, but just to see the challenges that are faced when we look for religious foundations of something like a right of religious freedom. I mean, it may seem obvious that there's going to be religious foundations, but um, since this is a right that has to be recognized by secular people as well as religious people, and since it's a right that might be rooted in some people's ideas of the simple rights of individuality rather than any particular religious story to be told about the fundamentals of the human person, it's that area that I want to explore, that area of um, the, the precise reason for expecting there to be religious foundations for human dignity. All right? So let's begin. To some people it seems obvious that an adequate conception of human dignity is going to be rooted in an understanding of the relation of the human person to God. It seems obvious that human dignity is going to be predicated on a sort of theological anthropology or a theologically informed understanding of the human being. Human dignity is based on what people are like and a theological or theologically informed anthropology gives us our deepest and most serious account of what people are like and what is important about them. Now, we know that there are many people who believe in human dignity, and indeed many people who believe in religious freedom, 
and other human rights who do not share this religious outlook. There are many people who believe in religious freedom. There are many people who believe in human dignity and human rights who do not share this religious outlook. Some say it's possible to elaborate an account of human dignity without this religious association. There are others, as you know, who believe that the idea of human dignity is entangled with religious ideas and the whole package should be thrown away. People who have argued that human dignity is a, is a stupid, redundant, pompous concept associated with religious superstitions and we would be better off without it. They think it's an irrational religious idea that is cluttering up clear moral thinking. So we have to be aware of those two groups as we proceed here. Pe people who reject dignity because of its religious connotations, people who are good faith, good hearted believers in human dignity and human rights, but believe that they can pursue that interest and that concern without religious foundations. We can't ignore those positions, and so we have to figure out the religious understanding of human dignity as a viable alternative to non-religious understandings. The challenge, as I understand it, is not to come up with a theological conception of human dignity that will convince or convert these opponents. That may be out of the question. But at least we need to be able to present a statement of the religious conception of human dignity that is elaborate and clear and that adds up to something that can stand as an intellectually respectable position in this debate, capable of doing, if only on its own terms, the sort of work that a full-blooded and meaningful conception of what's important, most important about the human person uh, needs to do. What we're looking for in this foundational quest is something more than biblical quotation and something more than portentous creedal assertion. It's got to match in its depth and complexity the importance and intellectual structure that the idea of human dignity is supposed to involve, and it's got to answer in its weight and in its elaboration the challenges that lead proponents of human dignity to look for a religious foundation in the first place. We're not just looking for a little bit of scripture that can be nailed onto the underside of our views about human rights. Right? So we have an ambitious agenda, and of course I have to offer the usual cowardly disclaimer that I can only do a very small part of it this morning. In modern legal and political thought, the idea of human dignity is closely associated with the idea of equality. Not equality of income or equality of, of uh, wealth or um, equality of resources or anything like that or even equal opportunity, but the claim that humans are basically one another's equals, that humans are basically one another's equals. Even if particular egalitarian proposals like the reduction of income inequality and all the stuff that um, um, Piketty and others have, have been pursuing, even if that is put to one side, uh, the idea that humans are all one another's equals and as such entitled to equal respect is a fundamental of modern moral theory. Understood in this way, the idea of equality, basic equality, is not the same as human dignity, but I believe that human dignity necessarily implicates it. You could have a non-dignitarian account of the basic equality of human beings, believing, for example, that humans were all equally inconsiderable, none more considerable than others. One could hold that the human person is 
but an animal, in a phrase that Burke used to describe the position of some of his opponents, but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. There might even be religious conceptions to this effect, characterizing sinful man as more like a worm or a devil, and we are all equally like a worm or a devil, and attributing this equal degradation to all persons through the doctrine of original sin. But a conception of equal dignity holds not just that humans are of equal worth, but that they are of high worth, of equal rank, but of high rank among the inhabitants of the world, that there is something affirmatively important and valuable in the human person as such, and equally so for each human person. And so the egalitarian component says this is true of every human being. I've argued elsewhere, I won't go through it today, that the phrase human dignity conveys the sort of high-ranking egalitarianism. We are all noble. Every man a king, every woman a queen. We are a caste society with one very, very high caste. We are an aristocratic society that recognizes the nobility of all persons. Conveys this sort of equality in a way that older notions of dignity or dignitas, which might vary hierarchically according to rank and role, did not convey. So we've kind of appropriated the high rank of dignity but attributed it equally to all persons. Now, in what follows, I want to concentrate on the egalitarian aspect of the human dignity idea, and I want to ask this question about religious foundations with an eye especially to the principle of basic human equality. I want to ask about whether our best understanding of human being and human person, a theologically informed anthropology, is something that we need to make sense of this high notion of equal dignity. Some of my earlier work addressed this issue of basic equality without locating it in the conception of human dignity. I didn't talk much about dignity in my 2002 book, God, Locke, and Equality. And Locke didn't say much about human dignity either, though he gestured pretty vividly towards it in his insistence in the first treatise that men and women are both created in the image of God and that their intellectual nature was certainly a part of this and belonged to the whole species. But at the end of that book, I made this observation, which was intended to be sort of provocative. I said the shape of the concept of human equality now may possibly be inexplicable without reference to the religious traditions that fashioned it. Some will say that modern egalitarians have simply given the lie to those like John Locke, who claim that it's impossible to commit oneself to or work with or make great sacrifices for something of this shape without a commitment to the religious forces that shaped it. And maybe that is right. It is, as Locke says, no diminishing to revelation that reason now gives its suffrage to to the truths that Revelation has discovered. But whether this concept of high-ranking human equality, curiously shaped as it is from reason's autonomous point of view, will retain its shape under the various pressures that it faces and how haphazardly and deformed it may grow if it's required to take on a life of its own separate from its religious foundations, that, of course, is another matter. Maybe the notion of humans as one another's equals will begin to fall apart under pressure without the presence, continued presence of the religious conception that shaped it. As we've seen, 
based on the rest of the God lock inequality book. It's a complex and elaborate idea, and there's no reason to suppose that the complexity is not matched by a certain fragility when it or we are left to our own devices. Now, that wasn't an argument. That was a sort of portentous claim at the end of the book, but I want to do something to substantiate that now. The idea of a religious grounding for basic human equality, basic human dignity, is not far-fetched. Yeah? You can certainly open up your Bible and find the appropriate passages that you might want to quote, whether they are passages about the image of God, the prophet's concern for the poorest and for social justice, the validation of human nature in the incarnation, Jesus' concern for the poorest in his ministry, Paul's idea of equality in, in Christian community, say in the great passage about there is neither Greek nor Roman, slave nor free, man nor woman in the Galatians epistle and so on. But as I've already indicated, it won't do just to cite these sorts of points and call that a religious foundation. We can surely find various passages in the Psalms and Genesis and Isaiah and Amos in the Gospel teachings and in Paul's writings to support the view that all humans are at base one another's equals. But this sort of support can seem sometimes thin and contingent. We have to take Scripture very seriously. But from an even slightly detached point of view, it may seem purely an accident that this phrase was used rather than that phrase or this book was canonized rather than that book. And um, if we do use Scripture, we want to use it as a clue to a deeper, more pervasive, more substantive uh, Christian anthropology. And I'm conscious, too, that people have been known to cite other passages of Scripture to the contrary effect. Biblical chapter and verse have been cited for racial inequality and slavery and gender inequality, too, as we all know, not to mention political hierarchy. Certainly people have used religion to validate massive inequality, massive hierarchy, social and political. It would be wrong not to mention these possibilities. We don't want the defense of equal dignity against its opponents to degenerate into simple Bible bashing back and forth between the defenders and the opponents of basic human equality. Less troubling also, but as important intellectually, is that in political philosophy, we are now aware that not all positions that look egalitarian are egalitarian. Some of the scriptural passages that I quote are passages about special concern for the needy or for those who are suffering or for those who are lowest in the hierarchy, the worst off. And those are massively important concerns, but they could survive the view that we are not particularly interested in equality. That's a form of priority for need, and priority for need doesn't necessarily require a doctrine, a deep doctrine of equality. When the Lord says we should pay attention to the least of these my brethren, that might be a freestanding position, a very important position, but it, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, take us to equality. The prioritization of need is not the same as a doctrine of equality. I learned this in the company of Joseph Raz uh, and others in legal and political philosophy. There's also the further question, why would a religion, our religion, any religion, be interested in equality as I'm understanding it? It's only a partially rhetorical question. Religions have other concerns. Worship, creed, redemption, the hereafter, are equal dignity and basic human equality necessarily on this list? 
our agendas, even the agendas of the bunches of believers who also do moral philosophy, are not necessarily our religion's agendas. Our religions may teach us to look at and be preoccupied with other things that we were not preoccupied with before. That's the important thing about religion. We sort of instinctively associate the foundations of our moral and political thinking, we do, with religion. But we've got to ask why. Uh, yeah, my kingdom is not of this world, is, is something that we are told. And the fundamental premises of justice and equality that we need on our pilgrimage in this world may not be the most important things in the religious understanding. I mean, it's a little bit Augustinian, but, uh, but I, I want to hang on to that idea. And there's a question which I also want to pursue as a sort of political philosopher. Why does human dignity or basic equality, why do they need a religious foundation? What is it about basic equality or equal dignity that leads us to expect that there will be or must be or needs to be something like a religious foundation? Well, some might say, well, it's a moral position and a deep one, and deep moral positions as such require religious foundations. But I want to ask whether the case for or the felt need for religious foundations is stronger or more compelling in the case of some values and principles rather than others, and perhaps strongest of all in this matter of equal dignity. I'm going to give an affirmative answer, you understand. This is not going to be skeptical all the way through, but I'm trying to set the stage for some rigorous thinking that doesn't necessarily work with easy assumptions. I've heard it said that equal dignity cannot be based on any natural property of human beings, like our reason, for example, because such properties are all scalar and variable, right? Mary Ellen's reason is superior to mine. Uh, the virtue of many of the people in this room is well known to be superior to mine. And so humans vary. In his great book, Created Equal, Joshua Berman, who's an Israeli scholar, says the following about human variability. Berman says, some are more intelligent, some are physically stronger, some demonstrate a stronger moral fortitude, to name only a few measures of distinction that are readily evident. To proclaim the basic equality of a given set of persons then requires appeal to first principles that go beneath that, that are not empirical, maybe that are almost metaphysical in orientation. Looks like we have to go down to some metaphysical bedrock to avoid empirical variability. I'm not sure that I accept this. I'm going to be giving Gifford lectures in Edinburgh uh, next January, and what you're hearing is a little chunk of the later lectures in that series. In the early lectures, I'm going to argue, as I argued in my unpublished work on basic equality, that it's possible for empirical or natural properties to be taken as the basis of human equality, provided that they are conceived as what John Rawls called range properties, that is, thresholds or areas on the scalar application of an empirical property where the area, the range, being in the range is conceived to be more important than being in any particular area uh, on the scale. Being in New Jersey is a range property from a lawyer's point of view. If you're in Princeton, you're right in the middle of New Jersey. If you're in Hoboken, you're right on the edge of New Jersey. But they are both equally in Jersey so far as the range, so far as the range property of jurisdiction, state jurisdiction is concerned. And we need to think, I believe, about the empirical basis of human equality along those lines. 
It may not matter how much reason a person has, but that they have reason may be uh, important. So it's not so much that we go to different properties, it's just that we think of the relevant underlying properties in our theologically informed anthropology in a particular way. We have to be motivated to focus on the range or the threshold rather than on the scale of differences. We have to be motivated to conceive of the relevant properties in, those, in that way, and it may be that motivation that is religious in character. All of this builds on work that John Rawls did in section 77 of A Theory of Justice in his great um, discussion of the basis of equality. Or maybe, so there's a role for the religious explanation to see why we would focus on properties in this peculiar way, like we do with jurisdictional uh, distinctions and so on. Or maybe, and or maybe, the reason we look for a religious justification is because equal dignity for humans seems to operate as a very deep principle. I don't mean deep in the sense of Waldron being profound. I mean deep in the order of argument operates as a very deep principle, perhaps an ultimate or foundational principle. Moral principles, as you know, operate at all sorts of levels. There can be superficial ones, there can be intermediate ones, and there can be fundamental ones. We have such a hierarchy when we talk about the right to religious freedom. We think that's an intermediate principle that reflects the importance of certain underlying ideas that we're trying to articulate here. So we have intermediate principles and deep principles. In its preamble, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights tells us that the rights it contains derive from the inherent dignity of the human person. So again, there's a sort of image of found. I know not everybody accepts a foundationalist approach. I find it irresistible because of the sort of rather linear character of my mind. <laughs> but you know what I mean when somebody might say that the principle of human dignity is deeper than the principle of, say, free speech or religious freedom. Isaiah Berlin once made a mistake of suggesting there could be a utilitarian argument for basic equality. But that gets things exactly the wrong way around. Basic equality is one of the things that informs the idea of utilitarianism. Everybody's pain or suffering counts the same as everybody else's. So you can't have a, a non-question-begging utilitarian argument. As you go deeper and deeper, you run out of considerations to cite in support of the deepest values. And it may be thought at that stage you have to move to something transcendent. The deeper one goes in morality, the fewer conventional moral resources there are to complement or support the position one finds oneself taking. As one approaches the rock-bottom foundations of morality, it's not implausible to think that we have to move to some sort of transcendent idea and that maybe religious conceptions may fill this role. And then complementing this all the time, and I was asking why we might think we need a religious foundation. Complementing this is a point about the work, the heavy lifting that the concept of human dignity has to do. Defending the egalitarian aspect of basic equality is not just a matter of coming up with some suitably shaped property or idea that all humans share on the basis of which normatively loaded equality might supervene. If basic equality is based on a descriptive property of human beings, it must be a property that has the momentous importance. That means it's capable of doing the heavy lifting. That's such a foundational principle. It's going to be a load-bearing part of the foundation. That normative work is comprehensive 
and foundational across all aspects of morality. So the property in question or the elements from our theological anthropology have to approach momentous significance. So, for example, I don't know, in the Kantian tradition, it's said that the momentous thing about human beings, the basis of their dignity, is their ability to engage in moral agency, their ability to act on principle, their ability to resist inclination in the name of principle. And I believe Kant is right about that, that it is a momentously important thing, but it doesn't seem to be capable of supporting the whole panoply of rights and ideas that human dignity is supposed to support. I think it can probably support a right to moral freedom, a right to religious freedom. I'm not sure, for example, that it could support social and economic rights or that it could support the idea of equal concern as opposed to equal respect. You can concoct and tell a story that the reason hungry children need to be fed and sick children need medicine is so that they can develop their moral capacities. But that's a pretty ramshackle, instrumentalized view of the attention to each person that's required on this matter. Basic human rights require us to care for and to look out for each other along a whole array of different dimensions. And we have to make sure that the the important thing about human being that we pay attention to is capable of spreading out and doing that heavy lifting. The foundation is the foundation of a very wide structure, if you see what I mean. So it has to be comprehensive, not comprehensive in the sense that Rawls talks about comprehensive, although I'll say something about that later. It has to do heavy lifting in another sense. The principle of equal dignity is often challenged by or it has to confront pressures of self-love, people's proud and indignant prioritization of their family and friends. How dare you suggest that I treat my children as the equals of all other children in the world? Or the prioritization of nation, prioritization of particular community. principle of equal human dignity working through the idea of human rights has got to be able to stand up to that stuff. It's got to be robust as well as, as, well as wide in its ramifications. It has to have the sort of weight. And there's another aspect of this that I find a little bit harder to put into words. The basis of human dignity has to be not only comprehensive and normatively robust, It has to have a certain objective resilience that precludes its being modified or rethought in ways that weaken its force to accommodate our other concerns. When Mary Ellen O'Connell and I and others were working on the issue of torture in, I guess, 10 years ago, during that terrible period in the history of this country, We had to, of course, work with positive law, and positive law can be different and can be reformulated and so on, but also we had to work with moral ideas that we thought were compelling, moral absolutes that we thought were compelling, not just in the sense that they were normatively robust, but they were not subject to being rethought just because the shape of our reflective equilibrium was different. Now we have to deal with terrorism, so therefore the norm about torture can be rethought. In the piece that I wrote on torture in Theology Today, which was based on that conference, which was held when, Mary Ellen, 2006, was it that late? Yeah. I suggested that there has to be a special sense that the norm itself is untouchable. You build a fence around the norm, yeah, and that even to think of approaching the norm against torture 
with a view to its reformulation might be a certain sort of violation of something that's sacrosanct. This is not something we are supposed to have control over. We have to have an attitude of humility towards the value positions. Okay. All of this, in a way, has been throat-clearing. But you only clear the throat in order to say something, so it's time to consider, again, the kind of religious offerings that may be appropriate here. I believe there are negative points and positive points. Theories of human inequality most come to us retail, not extolling inequality as such, but proclaiming the importance of certain differences, proclaiming the importance of certain bases of equality, bases of inequality like superior and inferior wisdom, superior and inferior power, superior and inferior virtue. One contribution that a religion like Christianity or Judaism might make is negative in character, casting doubt on the importance of these alleged bases of normative inequality, casting doubt upon them because of the humility that they undermine or the idolatry that they sponsor, casting doubt, for example, on particular dimensions of inequality, like vesting too much significance in differences of human wisdom, given our understanding of the foolishness of God being, the greater, being greater than the wisdom of human beings, or giving too much emphasis on differences of virtue, given the importance of moral humility and the understanding of the flawed nature of human character, or too much emphasis on power, given the fact that the kingdom we are supposed to look for is not of this world. What negative points like these, negative points like these, I think, are very, very important. That the way the world values inequality, the way the world is tempted to offer differential rights, to withdraw rights from the wicked, for example, or to give special rights to those who are specially powerful or attractive or smart, we have to imagine that a foundation for equal dignity has to rebut each such outbreak as it crops up. Right? So there's that negative work to be done, and often that negative work is religious in character. Religion shows us that these differences are not as important as some people are making them out to be. But there's ultimately no substitute for an affirmative account as well of human dignity and of its egalitarian aspect. If we're seeking to base human equality on some natural characteristics of human beings, then we've got to look for some momentous characteristic that does apply to all people and that can generate us, or, as I say, sponsor this notion of basic equality. When I wrote God, Locke, and Equality, I was very, very interested in the argument that for John Locke, was the basis of human equality, which was human ability to know God, which he thought, given his particular view about the arguments in favor of the existence of God, the human ability to know God required elementary capabilities of abstraction. And anybody who was capable of doing abstract thinking was capable of following relatively straightforward lines of reasoning, which would establish uh, the existence of God. Humans might vary enormously in their abstraction capabilities, in their logical abilities and intellectual abilities. But basically, most humans are the same in this regard, and as Locke put it in the essay, 
It yet secures their great concernments that they have light enough to lead them to the knowledge of their maker and the sight of their own duties. The candle that is set up in us shines bright enough for all our purposes. The idea is that once you get over that threshold of having the capability of knowing that there is a God and that you are probably one of his servants sent on earth about his business and uh, uh, to be understood in that light, then that's basically what you need to know. And the capability of having that knowledge um, is, is important. As a creature who knows about the existence of God and who is therefore in a position to answer responsibly to his commandments, that is someone whose existence by that reason alone has special significance. And other characteristics that may be important will include the Kantian idea that I mentioned already, although by itself I don't think that's capable of doing this work, free will, moral understanding, the capacity for repentance, that we might draw distinctions between different people. It may be the case that from a religious point of view, the sheer fact of having free will, the capacity to make a, a world, and the ability to repent is sufficient. And a third property that all humans have, which might be significant as a basis for human equality, might be the capacity to love, the capacity to recognize and identify with another person, to involve oneself fully and existentially in how things are and how things go for the other person and to both lose and find oneself in such a relationship. There are three ideas to, to go on with. Each idea could be informed to a greater or lesser extent with religious significance. To know God, to have moral freedom, to be capable of love. Other ideas could be brought up as well. Is it important for us to locate the basis of human dignity in just one of these ideas? I think there's no reason to suppose so, and several reasons to suppose the contrary. As I said before, the narrower the basis, the more difficult it's going to be to do the comprehensive work that needs to be done for human dignity. But secondly, some of the capacities we have mentioned look odd and naked, considered in isolation from one another. Knowledge of God is not disconnected from our ability to love. It informs our ability to love and is informed by it. In a theological account, our moral capacities are not separate from our ability to God, to know God, nor are they separate from our capacity for love, and so on. So what I'm suggesting is that the properties that I've mentioned may add up to an account, a multifaceted foundation for human dignity. It may be a gestalt in the way that any thinking about the image of God has to be a gestalt. A resemblance can't just be a resemblance in one aspect, certainly not if it's supposed to be an image. It's um, going to be an array of resemblance. So there's that. There's also the point that many of these properties are not just single-valued properties, but are relational. They are not just features of the individual who has them, but they relate him or her to others knowledge to God, love in our relation to God and to our neighbor, repentance in our anticipation of another's forgiveness and so on, dignity may lie in our relational capacities. So it's not just assembling a gestalt of particular characteristics, but we have to understand them as relational. But here's the important point I want to stress. Even when we get that far, it's important not to understand this statically. Both the relationality 
and the array of properties and relations that are involved add up to something like a kind of story or narrative that might be told about the significance of the life of every human being, a story or a narrative that might be told about the significance of the life of every human being. The image of God in me, assuming that I have it, is consecrated not for its own sake, but for the fellowship with God that it may eventually make possible if things go as they should. The capacity to love others brings with it the possibility of a process in real time as well as the consummation of that process in the life to come. Knowledge of God presupposes a dynamic process of moving from childish familiarity to creedal faith to something that will take us beyond faith to the immediate vision of God no longer in a glass darkly but face to face. So we think of dynamic narrative structure of these properties and relations. All the great religions posit the specialness of the human person but not simply in in terms of the human person having a certain feature or a mark of worth. They do not just posit a special momentous property or set of properties that all humans share, but a special story or a trajectory or a range of dynamic possibilities that apply to each person. Each human is seen as recipient of a high calling, a possible subject of faith, subject and object of love, and subject of penitence and object of redemption. These are processes, not just properties, and they point us towards a dynamic account of human dignity. So instead of just looking for a set or a gestalt of properties whose static possession confers sanctity on the human person, we might think instead about how theological importance attaches to the unity of human nature inasmuch as the same story of creation, sin, life, faith, potential penitence and redemption is to be told about each person that there is a story of this kind to be told about each individual. This, it might be said, is a sort of thing that grounds human dignity on a religious account. It seems to have the right sort of heft, the right sort of weight for the story that might be told about each individual is of momentous importance, if it's rightly understood for each individual. It's not just a hobby or some idiosyncratic preoccupation. It might, if we accept some crucial teachings, be important for God himself who yearns for the proper consummation of the story for each and every individual in oneness and love and fellowship. And equally, it's a characterization, I think, that has this wide scope or this potential for wide scope because there is virtually nothing in our lives that may not pertain to it, every aspect of the living of our lives. It has broad, comprehensive, practical ramifications, and it's certainly going to have ramifications for how we think about the right to freedom of worship and the right to religious observance and the right to freedom of conscience, all of which will be integral aspects of this story that is foundationally true of each human being. Now, I'm talking, I mean, that's about as far as I can go today on issues of how particular rights are derived from this vision. Mostly just doing this foundational work, indicating that that this will be the sort of work that religion genuinely has to offer. Just some vague spirituality, just some vague sanctity of the human person won't do. We need an account that is this rich, this complex, this broad, and this dynamic. And um, I think it's important. 
But the more you have an account of this kind, this is the last set of points I want to make, the more that you have an account of this kind, which doesn't just vaguely gesture at the sanctity of the human person, but insists on the centrality for each person of a certain sort of story that involves a dynamic relation to God and to others, the more you take that line, the more we are distancing ourselves even further from the good-hearted proponents of human dignity who have managed to find a commitment to dignity that is not predicated on any religious faith. Because this is now a very challenging story. This is now a story that uh, indicates that could be quite divisive. It's emphatically, not just vaguely, religious. To them, it might seem like superstitious or childish rubbish. Is it offensive to air these views in public? For those who believe in it, human dignity is a matter of public concern, right? This is not just, it's not just a religious idea. It's put forward as a cardinal value of social and political life, for example, in Article 1 of the Basic Law of Germany. It's widely regarded as the foundation of human rights. In the United States, it's a constitutional value. They're not one that is found in the constitutional text. In some countries, respect for human dignity is regarded as an element of public order. Some would say, therefore, that any published analysis of human dignity or of its foundations must take place under the discipline of public reason. These are public ideas. These are not just creedal or scriptural or religious or worship ideas, but they are relevant to all of that. If the discipline of public reason forbids or frowns upon the introduction of comprehensive religious views into public discourse, as John Rawls argued in political liberalism, and as many of my friends believe, then it would seem to follow that an account of the type I have been presenting here should be withdrawn or held closely in loose hall without lighting up the rest of Princeton. I don't accept that for two reasons. First, somebody has to do this work, and we have to follow our thoughts where they lead us. And if there are religious ideas that are relevant here, we can't pretend that they're not. Um, particularly if you think of the Rawlsian idea as being some sort of overlapping consensus, then the paths to overlapping consensus have to come from somewhere. And this is the one for religious folks. This is the one for church folks. They would be selling themselves short if they didn't, if they didn't pursue them. And I've indicated elsewhere other reasons for rejecting the Rawlsian account of public reason. I believe it distorts as well as truncates public discussion and that it's better and more respectful for people to just call things as they see it. Yeah? Call things as they see it. Tell the truth, the deep truth if necessary, about what you believe. Others will, some will understand it. Some will sort of understand it but wish they wouldn't. Some will feel resentful because it will reawaken unpleasant memories for them. There are all sorts of ways in which people respond to religious ideas when they're introduced indiscriminately into public discussion. But there's all sorts of things that offend people in public discussion anyway. Rawlsians say it's disrespectful to our fellow citizens for we're proposing as grounds for public principles that will impact on their lives considerations that they cannot make sense of. But I think that exaggerates how complicated life is out in the real world. Most people have some weird relation to religion. They, they live in a, in, a, in a civilization full of museums and churches and religious ideas. They have memories of religion. All, 
communication among human beings is going to be imperfect. We rarely are able to give another exactly the ideas that are in our heads. And people's reception of what we say is always informed by their positions. Public debate is like that. And the image of public debate that John Rawls and his followers have sometimes sponsored is quite unrealistic, I think, in terms of the idea of a meeting of minds using language that is as dull and ashen as the language of a Rotary Club meeting. (laughs) Maybe you go to a racier club than I do. On that last point, the public world that we inhabit is, as Robin has pointed out, a world in which those who know and love God are mixed up with those who love only themselves in the complicated ways, mixed up in complicated ways that do not allow us to separate them out. Again, that Augustinian image, we are on our pilgrimage to the city of God in the company and in the presence and in the environment of the city of man. And that's where we are. That's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves and we can't just withdraw into our own philosophical discussions What's more, those who know and love God are a mixed bunch with varying degrees of understanding, and those who pursue secular understanding are a mixed bunch too, more or less distant from, more or less able to understand religious conceptions. The whole thing is a bit of a melange. I'm talking about social reason, not just a rigidly regimented public reason. We talk not with an undifferentiated public, but back and forth with various people in various settings. It may not always be realistic to expect full comprehension, let alone conviction, when one offers an account along the lines of the account gestured towards in this lecture. But bits and pieces of it may be understood here and there, and one can at any rate bear witness to the depth and character of one's understanding. Not only that, but on any account, the public understanding of dignity is itself On any account, the public understanding of dignity is itself a messy work in progress, right? It's a work in progress. Its it's analysis is happening in real time, and that messiness will match what I'm describing as the messiness and pluralism, or what Robin described as the messiness and pluralism of public debate. Some say that the contestedness of definitions of human dignity is a ground for skepticism about the idea. I disagree. We are wrestling with it. We are working with it. And the fact that our work is incomplete is not a reason for abandoning abandoning it. We wrestle with these ideas long before we have a full grasp of them in any terrain. As Robin says quite rightly, this is in uh, his work on um, Christian realism and the new realities, chapter on human dignity, our understanding at any point in time will be incomplete and we should expect that to be reflected in the incomplete and only partially comprehended character of debate on all sides. That seems to be be more realistic, an account of public or social reason, certainly more attractive and more faithful to the reality. The messiness indeed extends to the character of equal dignity as a religiously informed idea. When Robin and Mary Ellen and I were working with Will on um, internet foundations of international law, we were joined by a, a great Christian ethicist called David Gushy. And Gushy has described the concept of human dignity as a half-secularized remnant of an earlier Jewish and Christian concept best labeled as the sacred worth of the human person in the sight of God, or more simply, the sacredness of human life. And David has produced a terrific book on the sanctity of human life. It is, he said, a useful crossover term, a relatively thin secularization of an originally thick theocentric claim. 
So our topic is messy. And part of that work in progress is the world is seeing whether it is possible to adapt a concept of human dignity that can do secular work or whether it has to come with its religious foundations. And you can't do that without knowing all there is to know about the religious, the possible religious foundations. It's a term whose secular use carries with it a certain awareness of and nervousness about its religious underpinnings and whose religious use carries with it too a clearly felt sense that this is going to have to do work as a public concept in a mixed and mixed up realm. So in the interim, people will sometimes attempt to focus on the one aspect of the concept, the religious aspect, and sometimes on the other, the relatively secularized term that appears in human rights covenants. I can't see that there is anything offensive or wrong or uncivil about either enterprise or about any of the range of possible strategies in between, and I would not disparage for a moment the work of secular people on human dignity. There's plenty of work for all hands to undertake. That's not to say we should be indifferent among these possibilities, but it would be preposterous to try to define all but one of them out of existence. So here we all are. I began by wondering if there might be a religious foundation for equal human dignity. I voiced the suspicion in God, lock and equality that we need there to be a religious foundation and for it to be accepted at the very least among people of faith if the concept of equal human dignity is to be capable of doing the work that it has to do, including supporting religious freedom. But having undertaken that work, we mustn't flinch from the fact that when we pursue that task, it looks like we're going to end up with a quite deep and detailed account of the basis of this commitment, not just some vague gesture at the sanctity of the human person, but something quite substantive having to do with each person's relation to God as well as to others and to the prospects of salvation. It won't be something that non-believers can sort of, kind of, take on board in the spirit of broad spirituality, but it is still something that can take its place in the melange of ideas that whirl around human dignity, offering a determinate something for those who are curious about a possible religious foundation to latch onto, as well as a set of uncompromising theocentric truth claims that those who have the wit and the faith to evaluate can engage with. The secular folks may say to themselves, well, we certainly don't get all of this, but obviously it's felt pretty seriously and nothing glib or superficial is going to work as a secularization of it. They can say that. And the religious folks will say, I hope. So it's something this serious that we have to keep faith with somehow when we engage on this matter of human dignity in the public sphere. The meeting of those tolerant and open attitudes might be the best we can hope for in this sort of foundational inquiry. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you.